Amen. Thank you, Peter. And you may be seated. And just a reminder that uh, our, our children, our older children, are going to stay in the theater with us now. And thanks to Caitlin Boland, there's a little handout that's available for the kids. If you didn't get one when you came in, slip your hand out and our ushers will run one down to you and share that with you during our worship service. Well, my name is John Reddy. I'm privileged to serve here as one of the pastors at Redemption Hill Church. And one of our other pastors, our lead pastor, Tanner Turley, and his beautiful wife, Marsha, had the pleasure of welcoming a new life on Friday evening for Titus Storms Turley uh, made his appearance. And uh, I think all, they're all doing well, but I think that they're going to be going home today. And I do know that your texts and your messages are welcome. And uh, he'll be here soon enough. I guess one of the strategies of a committed church planter is to simply grow a big family. And so uh, <laughs> they've been taking care of that and doing that uh, quite well. Well, this morning, um, our series of teachings from the book of Acts of the Apostles, it sort of officially comes to an end. We've progressed from thinking about our streets or our participation in God's mission to reach those that are in our immediate neighborhoods and, and where we work and, and the environments that we are very familiar with. In Acts chapter 8, we went to Samaria and we met Philip and Simon Magus and an Ethiopian eunuch and we learned there that God was on mission and that he sovereignly prepares his people to providentially engage those who are, listen, ready to hear the gospel. In Acts chapter 9, we went to Damascus and we met Saul, now known as Paul, and went to Jerusalem with him and Barnabas, the encourager. And there we were assured that God can save anyone, certainly if he can save a renegade like Saul. In Acts chapter 10, we went to Caesarea and we met Peter and Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and we were assured that the gospel itself is for everyone, not just a select few. And then we sort of progressed our thinking to a series that we called In Boston as in Heaven, and we thought about God's mission to those that are in our larger city. In Acts 13, we looked at Antioch where Paul and Barnabas and the whole church gathered, and the Spirit of God operated amongst the people to then send individuals to the cities. In Acts 16, we looked at Philippi, where Paul and Silas engaged Lydia, a worshiper of God, a slave girl who was possessed by an evil spirit, and a jailer who was responsible for keeping them under lock and key. And there we discovered God's power to open hearts in a range of people. In Acts 17, we went to Thessalonica, and we saw Paul and Silas, and to some extent Jason, and we learned that cities were being turned upside down, even as churches were being multiplied. Later in 17, we went to Athens, and we saw Paul, and motivated by God's glory, and the truth of the gospel, and the heart of true worship, the prevailing cultures and the philosophies of his time were challenged. In Acts 18, in Corinth, Paul, along with Aquila and Priscilla, Silas and Timothy, declared that the cities were gods, that he was sovereign. And because of that, we did not need to be afraid of the faithful proclamation of his good news, knowing that some would respond like Titius Justus and Crispus, the synagogue leader, and some would not respond like some of the Jewish leaders or Gallio, the Roman proconsul. In Acts 19, we went to Ephesus and Paul met disciples who understood John's baptism and seven sons of Shiva that had no clue. And there we learned that the Holy Spirit awakens and transforms those who truly receive the gospel. And, and this progression that we've seen all the way through the book of Acts, it matches the progression that we were told about by Luke in Acts 1.8, where Jesus, just before he ascends to heaven, tells his disciples this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so after many chapters in the book of Acts this morning, I get to have one last thought. And so I'd like us to turn our attention to Rome. 
You see, that was the epicenter of the world at that time. So if you'll pick up your Bibles or turn on your apps and turn to our key scripture this morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 28. We're going to start by reading in verse 17, and we're going to find there that after a long and a pretty dangerous sea voyage, Paul finally arrives in Rome, but he's under guard. He's in private quarters. He's getting ready to face charges and actually exercise due process of Roman law. So if you'll read with me, beginning in verse 17, it says, After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appear before Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Would you just repeat after me? Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. Amen. So my my first encouragement this morning is that we should look close at hand to the gospel opportunities that are immediately around us. The Apostle Paul certainly had an awareness of Rome. It was the dominating center of power in its time. We know that he was a citizen with all the rights and the privileges of citizenship. We know from reading Acts that he had freely traveled wide-ranging roads built by the Roman Empire. We know in this account that he had legal affairs to attend to, and he was being brought by armed forces of the government to exercise those rights that he had. If we were to sort of peek up above, just above today's text, and look at verses 11 to 16, the writer of this, Luke, tells us how Paul had traveled and ultimately arrived in Rome. And there, the scriptures tell us that he celebrated that there were already Christians there in Rome. And they, the scripture says, celebrated his arrival in return. In fact, they were so eager to be with him that we're told a number of them went out to greet him, some as far as 75 miles out from Rome. And now gathered, they experienced a kind of fellowship that can only be known when one who's been adopted by God 
meets another who has been adopted by God. Luke tells us that this encounter greatly encouraged Paul. He was grateful for their kindnesses. He graciously thanked them. And listen, it gave him courage for the challenging work that was before him. And so sometimes I wonder if you understand that the elders at RHC encourage all of us to gather faithfully on a weekly basis, much like we've done this morning. And we encourage all of us to connect with a group and to serve with a team. And, and one of the reasons that we're so strong in that encouragement is because the type of encouragement that Paul is experiencing here can only be found in community and in the presence of other brothers and sisters in Christ. For the scriptures teach that we're not made for solitary existence. And so even though he was going to stay in Rome and be in private quarters by himself, it was clear that the company of believers for Paul was, and it continued to be, the pattern of his life. Paul was also aware that there were plenty of non-believing people living in Rome, representatives of the many people groups of the empire that now live there. It was sort of the nexus, all roads, you know, I've heard this, all roads lead to Rome. And so in the pattern that was common to Paul's past, and also, by the way, common to Jesus's as well, was that he first reached out to the local leaders of the Jews. And in theory, these local leaders should have been the ones that were nearest to God's story of redemption. You know, the hope that gets carried of the restoration of all brokenness. Certainly, these were the people that were the most similar demographically and culturally to who Paul was. And so it would make sense that his initial efforts at explaining his presence and reaching out with the gospel would start with those to which he shared the greatest things in common. And so it's one of the reasons why as elders here at RHC, oftentimes we encourage each one of us to consider who are we culturally near to? Who is it that God has already put into our immediate lives that we can cross that bridge and seek to explain his story? Many times, we, um, it's the very members of our own families or the friends that we've gathered around us. Well, in verse 17 through 20, if you have your scriptures still open, you'll see that Paul outlines in a bit of a speech the charges that are being made against him. And those charges come with his declaration of innocence. But we need to understand that this speech that Paul offers, his motive isn't that he be fairly adjudicated. Rather, he's taking advantage of the attention and the audience. He makes it clear to those that are hearing that his circumstances have been allowed. In fact, those circumstances have been allowed, at least in part, because of the hope of Israel. The hearers, the leaders of the Jews, they would have understood that that reference meant the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ, who Paul explained to them. It's that same Jesus that Paul earlier, we heard, encountered on the Damascus Road. And it's the same Jesus that Paul had committed his life city after city after city to sharing about. We learn that their response is noncommittal. It's clear if you read the text that they stayed out of the politics of the accusation. But they did declare at least a passing interest in hearing a little bit more about this sect as they called it, and they characterized it as everywhere being spoken against. And so you could say that they left the door open for more conversation and more consideration. And it, it makes me think here to encourage every one of us, including myself, to be bold in our storytelling without regard for immediate results. Sometimes a conversation now is the beginning point for conversation in the future. Sometimes it's the very process that God uses to draw others 
to himself. We need to be reminded of, as the church of Jesus Christ, that it is ultimately God's mission that's at play here and that we're his messengers, we are his servants, and we are his ambassadors. We're invited in to do what he, in fact, is actually doing. Well, verse 23 tells us that they did return. And this time, they came in greater numbers. It's not clear how many, but certainly more than the original group. And in the time that he had available, it says here from morning till evening, Paul did what Paul was actually shaped and born to do. He expounded. What did he expound? The scriptures. Scriptures that would have been familiar to his hearers. He testified. What did he testify about? He gave witness to the kingdom of God and all that that meant, the gospel. And it included probably his story that ultimately pointed towards God's story. And he did not hesitate to try and convince. Convince them about the identity of the Messiah who Paul identified as Jesus, who Paul said was always God's plan of restoration, for he took ones who in theory knew the word and brought them back to the law of Moses and the prophets to share and to point that out. And so again, I ask the question, if we look at this, what was their response? Well, the response that many of us can have sometimes when we uh, share our stories, there were mixed results. First, we should notice that some were, in fact, convinced. Right? Some. We don't know how many. But we do know that there was fruit from Paul's active choices of participation empowered by the living and moving and preparing Spirit of God. See, on that day that they were convinced, we can so easily leap over that phrase in this text and forget that on that day, sins were forgiven. Dead spirits became alive. Hearts of stone became hearts of flesh. Humans that were by themselves became adopted into God's family. And the kingdom of God continued to advance in reclaiming a world that was broken. And so rightly, Paul would have rejoiced. And even 2,000 years later, we can enter into that rejoicing as well. It's also true that some were not convinced. It says here that they disbelieved. The tone of Luke's writing indicates that it was more than just indifference. There appeared to be a hard-heartedness in place. In fact, Paul characterizes uh, their condition with a pretty tough truth from Isaiah the prophet. And as they heard these truths, those that departed in disbelief seemed to fulfill the very scriptures that they were rejecting with dull hearts, blocked ears, closed eyes, no understanding, and they remained sadly stuck in brokenness. And so as much as Paul must have rejoiced for those that responded in faith, I suspect that he must have grieved for those who responded in disbelief. And so, in a pattern that was so common to Paul's past, and by the way, common to Jesus's as well, Paul pursued those who appeared to be the most open to the gospel. In this case, the scripture tells us it was the Gentiles, those who were quite different from him culturally, but those who were available to him. And throughout the book of Acts, it's clear that the salvation of God had been sent to them. We saw that over and over and over in the stories of the cities that we reviewed earlier. And as Paul had observed and now was declaring, he says that they will listen, unlike some of the Jewish leaders that Paul shared common traits with. And... It's a reminder, I think, to us when we look at this that we're to exercise wisdom and discernment about those in our lives that it appears 
God is stirring. And as we recognize a level of openness that we are to move and act in service and proclamation for those that are in our midst. It says in the final two verses of chapter 28 that for two years, while Paul was waiting for his trial, we could see his commitment to what we call missional living. Missional living in the now. He was living at his own expense. He was welcoming, the scriptures say, all who were willing to come to him. And so there was a, an initiation, perhaps, from others. Hospitality, I think, should always be in the DNA of any follower of Jesus Christ that's committed to affirming the image of God in another person. And this kind of respect, it's basic to any call to share the gospel, and it's basic to who Paul was. It says that he proclaimed the kingdom of God. That proclamation was clear. Friendship evangelism or relationship evangelism, uh, as Tanner likes to remind us, is not evangelism if the gospel itself is not shared. And then it says that he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, responding to the Lordship of Christ in faith includes the daily application of the gospel in all phases of life. And this application requires consistent teaching where we can not only know the gospel, but we can also obey the gospel. And so this time of ministry, while Paul is waiting, Luke tells us as his final image that it was characterized by these two thoughts. Number one, there was great boldness. In fact, Luke says it was all boldness. Boldness by Paul, even though he was a great distance from home, even though he was in an unfamiliar, hostile environment, even while he was in shackles, even when he had political and religious opposition, and even when he faced the very real possibility of execution? And the answer is yes. Luke says that in the midst of all of those experiences, he exercised boldness. The fact is, it's, it's, it's quite likely that not only Paul proclaimed and taught those who came to call on him, but it's quite likely that he took advantage of the fact that he had a Roman guard shackled to him throughout the entirety of his two years. Paul tells us in the letter to the Philippians that the gospel was becoming known, as he says, throughout the whole praetorium. Praetorium was 9,000 imperial bodyguards that were stationed in Rome. And having seen Paul's practices all throughout the book of Acts, it's not a great stretch of our imagination to assume the sheer number of Roman guards that would have been rotating and necessary to periodically be attached to him. And during that imprisonment, there's no doubt that they would have been exposed to the activities that he was doing with anyone who was called on, calling on him. He would expound the scriptures, proclaim the kingdom of God, and testify to the truth of Jesus Christ, the whole time having perhaps an unwilling, but a constant companion by his side. And so even if we assume mixed results from that experience, the effect of faithful and bold sharing was evidence through the gospel going throughout the emperor's elite soldiers. And history tells us that that happened as well as the rest of the scriptures. And so my question to you, my question to myself when I think about this is, what keeps me from all boldness? When I'm trying to live missionally now, when you're in that same place, what keeps us from becoming bold? Is it awkwardness? I can't think of anything more awkward than having somebody attached to my wrist 24 hours a day. Is it fear of rejection? Do you realize how many people heard Paul and ultimately walked away 
Is it maybe you think you have something to lose? Paul's life was in the balance. My prayer is that I become a man of courage and boldness. I know that that's Tanner and John's prayer. My prayer is that that's for you as well. There's a second characteristic that Luke uses, and he says that during this time, Paul did all of these things without hindrance. And I've got to be honest, that seemed kind of confusing to me because it seemed like there were some pretty obvious obstacles for Paul during his time in Rome. Certainly, at the very least, there was limited mobility. That was a a sort of a present reality, and it certainly had significant impact. But even in his captivity, we can see that there were pockets, what I call pockets of freedom. And there were opportunities that were waiting to be recognized, and those opportunities needed to be taken advantage of. And so, while some of the obstacles may have been a hindrance to Paul, we need to remember that they were not a hindrance to God who's on mission, for there's no hindrance that's conceivable that you can come up with or I can come up with that God is neither unaware of or able to overcome. And so it should comfort us that in his sovereignty, God provides a certainty that whatever circumstances befall us, we have the ability to walk through that difficulty with the surety of his presence and not any fear of abandonment or displeasure And so we know that during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, an imprisonment that was providential because God had placed them there, that inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul recognized this pocket of freedom and he proceeded to write about the gospel of Jesus Christ extensively. Scholars tell us that it's during this time that Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, a personal letter written to Philemon, all of them commonly known as the prison epistles. It was during a Roman imprisonment that, that Paul actually wrote them and dispatched them. And they were written because rather than simply surrendering to the obstacles that were before him, Paul allowed God to redeem his time in that, in that captivity by encouraging other followers of Christ throughout the Mediterranean. And so I ask myself, do I see any obstacles in my life? And rather than focused on the obstacles, I ask myself the question, what are the pockets of freedom that God has left open for me? Instead of thinking about What's stopping you in your present circumstances? Can you identify any opportunities that lie before you? What circumstances has God providentially placed you in? How do you imagine God can redeem your time without hindrance? My prayer for us this morning is that each of us will sort of take a good look and look close at hand to the gospel opportunities that are immediately around us. And my prayer is that we recognize people that are in our midst right now, people that God is drawing to himself, and then upon recognizing it, that we seize every opportunity available to us with a spirit of boldness, but without a spirit of hindrance. May that be our prayer. So, That gets us to the end of the book of Acts. There's no specific indication about the outcome of Paul's trial in Rome. Regardless of that, Luke doesn't choose to inform us. There's a lot of theories around that. Some thought maybe Luke was intending to write a third volume. We just don't know. But regardless of the outcome, Acts 28, we know 2,000 years later, is not the end of the story. Why? Because let's go all the way back to Acts chapter 1. Remember, Jesus told his followers that they were going to be released to where? The end of the earth. Paul was certainly aware of that. Reaching places where the gospel had not gone, that was a passion of Paul's. In fact, Rome was never Paul's intended final destination. 
Why? Because the gospel had already been planted there. Paul, in fact, writes to Christians in Rome, and he tells them that after he collects relief funds for the poor in Jerusalem, that he is going to leave for Spain by way of you. He was going to use Rome as a resourcing and sort of as a launching base. You see, in the minds of most in the Roman Empire, Spain, or what we would call Western Europe, was the limits of the West. It was, in fact, in many people's minds, the end of the earth. And throughout Paul's journeys, even while he was living missionally in the now, Paul carried a vision of the future based, according to Romans 15, on his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named. You see, Paul wanted to testify. Paul wanted to convince unreached peoples. And in his letter to the Romans, he was at least in part appealing to them for their assistance. And so, even as we wrap up this study in Acts, where we looked at our streets and our immediate neighborhoods, and we thought about our cities, greater Medford and beyond, I challenge us this morning to look to our world, to think beyond just our city. And so my second encouragement is that we should look beyond ourselves to the larger world of gospel opportunities. Now, this willingness to look beyond ourselves is a key part of the DNA of Redemption Hill Church. I think if you'll look at the image that I think is behind me or will be coming up soon, um, it's probably familiar to a lot of you, and it it's, it's sort of captures our heart to help all people become mature and multiplying followers of Jesus. And in that bottom right-hand uh, corner, you may see little arrows coming off that multiply circle. And, and that sort of represents the many different ways that we can individually and collectively impact life locally here in Greater Medford, but also impact life globally. And so thinking about that, coming off of our study of Acts, and remembering that steps change stories, I've decided this morning to take a few minutes to equip us to become more global Christians with a view that's beyond even ourselves and our immediate circumstances. So as you entered worship this morning, I'm hoping that you grabbed a worship guide. That's a good practice every week, I think. And in the worship guide, I gave you a little special attachment. If you have that, would you take that out? And um, on the reverse side... I listed 30, I'm not going to look at them all, but at least 30 simple, wide-ranging steps that any one of us here can identify and take as our journey towards growing as a global Christian. I'm just going to summarize a couple of them for us. You know, one thing that we could do is we could uh, know God's world better, and we can just gather some, some key missional information And so to know God's world, we need to know uh, God's heart about his creation. And so therefore, studying and meditating and memorizing key scriptures can transform the way that we see his mission to the world. Exposure to to great teaching and, and stirring missionary stories. Many of the stories of missional outreach to the world have actually been birthed out of Massachusetts itself. It can give us some real examples to follow. One example that I would highlight that you could do is you could simply, underneath that first section, you could sign up for the Joshua Project. You could learn about real people groups that today perhaps you're unfamiliar with or nations across the world that God is intending to pursue. And their website, I've made it easy for you, their website is right there. And you can take that and you can go and have one small step into growing in your awareness as a missional global Christian. You could, number two, Pray for God's world with a heart of intercession. You know, when we take what we've learned about God's world, we can then be privileged to pray with God in an ever-growing cycle of specificity. Sometimes have you ever been concerned that your prayers just seem unfocused, and yet as we learn about other people groups, we can become more specific. We can pray for those people groups. We can pray for national leaders. We can pray for laborers to the harvest. We can pray for the international issues of our day. 
We can pray individually. We can pray collectively. We can pray short little moment prayers or we commit ourselves to extended periods of intercession. The bottom line is we can enter into God's mission to reach the world by taking up the task of prayer and we can do it not as a church that values prayer but as a church that's actually a praying church. A simple example that I can give you is to uh, keep a stack of prayer cards handy um, either at your dinner table or on your refrigerator and when you're not sure you can sort of take one of them and just pray for an individual or pray for a country. This morning I asked uh, Ellen Schumacher, who leads our mission mobilization, to put a few examples out there. And these three are all on my refrigerator. So every time I go for extra calories, I can, I can uh, pray for my diet and exercise and remember. Um, I can remember Sylvanus, who is serving in uh, New York City, reaching Nepalese-speaking uh, immigrants. I can pray for James Copeland and his wife, Abby, who are in Montreal and uh, planting a church uh, in an area rich with Quebecois and internationals. I can pray for Joel and Jen Smith, who we heard from last week. And it doesn't take much for me to even catch a glance and take and have a moment of prayer and intercession for them. I can choose to, and you can choose to live a credible lifestyle by integrating our lifestyle here with the attitude of a world-class Christian vision. So while we're living here, we can make some simple adjustments to our life that can authentically demonstrate and proclaim to those around us a heart for those who do not know and a heart for those that do not have. And so things like in, intentional hospitality and planned sacrifice and intersecting our lives internationally, those are all opportunities for us to grow in sensitivity and service and witness. A super simple example that we can take is we can open up our homes to international students that are attending local universities. We can simply choose to care about them, um, especially during t times of their stress or holidays or breaks. You know, college students are going to be returning soon in about a month, and so you can simply choose to adopt one. You can do it through a formal program, or you can just make it your business to meet one, know one, and adopt them. Did you know that the Tufts Fletcher School of Diplomacy has international students from all over the world that come here to Medford to study to be the diplomats and statesmen of our time and their intentions is to go back home. And so the mission field, frankly, has come to Medford, Massachusetts. There's lots of opportunities like that. You can give a care package. You can invite somebody to lunch after church. Last year, um, Teresa and I had a young man over for Thanksgiving, Philip from Belgium. He had never experienced an American Thanksgiving. And so I had the chance to explain to him culturally what Thanksgiving meant, but I also had the chance to explain to him spiritually what the act of Thanksgiving is all about. And he received the gospel in that manner. Fourth thing you can do, you can actually move and become a doer of God's, in God's world through some practical involvement. And so you can make connections between your time and your talent and your treasures, and you can move with some intentionality and some commitment towards global involvement. That's the key. It's crucial to not being stuck with just having a lot of information. If you don't act on that information, you will remain an encyclopedia. Two simple uh, examples that I can think of relate to uh, how we manage our treasure. One thing you could do is you could uh, continue to give regular offerings here at Redemption Hill Church. The reason why I share that with you is if you look on the handout that I gave you, the upper half is a listing of missionaries and mission organizations that we currently support as a church, 11 to 12% of every nickel that comes in internally goes right out the door in missional effort. And so you're very much partnering with these individuals. You can also choose to perhaps give a, um, um, participate in helping send somebody who's preparing to actually go. And so in the life of our church, uh, there are individuals who are going to go on one of two upcoming mission trips. One is happening in October. There's a group that's going to go to Montreal and uh, where the Quebecois uh, live and Renaissance Church in James Copeland. There'll be a group that goes up in the middle of October. And as we learned last week, uh, there's a group that's going to go to Central Asia to spend time with Joel and Jen Smith. We had an interest meeting last week and the great news is there was interest. But clearly one of the limitations is Central Asia is hard to get to and it's expensive. And so if you're not sent you may 
be involved by being the sender that comes alongside and helps to support and resource an individual who is ready to go in the name of Jesus. And then finally, this fifth sort of a, a point, I'd be remiss if I didn't challenge you to find your place in the middle of God's mission to the world. And that includes investigating his call on your life. You know, you may take a next step by asking not just if you're a sender, but you may take the next step and ask if you're sent. You may choose to pray and to discuss with others, not the question, should I go? Maybe the question you should be praying is, Lord, should I stay? You can be creative in your investigation. I've given you a bunch of examples of creative ways to think about um, reaching out internationally. You can be open. You can be discerning. You can be willing. A simple example might be uh, those two mission trips that I just mentioned. Um, we're collecting interest. There's an application and, interview pro uh, application and interest process that actually shuts off by next Sunday. And so between now and then, you may just simply investigate the possibility that you would go to Central Asia or the possibility that you would go to Montreal. And that might be a beginning step in looking at longer term or uh, additional creative ways to actually be sent. My prayer this morning for all of us is as I've summarized some possible next steps that we can all grow as global Christians, that maybe, just maybe, your interest will be piqued and maybe you'll move towards taking some simple next step. You know, if we really desire to be what I'll call world-class Christians, um, I'm going to borrow a phrase from an author that I like named Paul Borthwick. He says that we need to develop what he calls bifocal vision. If you remember, some of you are too young, not dealing with this, but but in our household, there's a few pairs of bifocals hanging around. And uh, bifocals usually have two sections, right? One lens, but two sections. And one corrects nearsightedness and one corrects farsightedness. So you can have an accurate. And you flick your eyes up and down in order to focus in either near or far. I think as Christians, we need bifocal global view. Um, we need to improve our nearsighted vision so that we look close at hand to the needs that are around us. But at the same time, we need to improve our farsighted vision so that we can look beyond ourselves to the world of need and opportunity. The Apostle Paul, if nothing else, this can be your takeaway. He had bifocal global vision. He lived missionally in the moment while looking globally into the future. We need, as followers of Christ, to do both. It's interesting, did Paul ever get to Spain? Some schools of thought say that he was martyred in Rome and, and never made it, and there's that le those legends and traditions. There are some scholars that actually argue that, in fact, he did have an opportunity to continue on to Spain, it would have been about a seven-day journey, so it was certainly close enough. Truth is, we really don't know for sure if Paul made it to Spain, but history tells us that someone did. For Paul's vision for Spain was God's vision. It's a vision that he shared with Paul, but he certainly shared it with the church at large. And then he moved men and women, even beyond Paul, to go to Spain. And there the gospel was planted, and it grew. And then it sprouted to pollinate other unreached places. And the ripple of that has even come to the shores of Massachusetts, even to Medford, Massachusetts. And how do I know that? Because we are the distant fruit of that vision. Frankly, unlike Paul, I haven't always had my bifocals on. Um, as many of you know, I spent almost 25 years in a church in North Reading, and for many of those years, I did the things of mission, but I didn't, if I'm honest, 
and confess, I didn't have the heart and the weight of the activities that I was doing. In 2008, in my prayer time, God began to press in on me. He began to whisper. And I began to have questions with him. It was almost two years. It troubled me that I didn't feel the weight of his heart. I was overwhelmed by the bigness of the globe. And in those times of prayer, I heard God say to trust him and he would guide me. In October of 2009, I received an invitation unexpectedly in my mailbox. It was an invitation to go to an anniversary service at the Haitian Baptist Church of Lynn. They were celebrating, it was a small little community of gathered Haitians, and they were celebrating a milestone in their church's life. And for me, critically, their service was a Sunday at five, so it didn't conflict with my Sunday morning routines. And I don't even know who sent it to me at that time. It wasn't marked, and it was quite unexpected. But as I took it out of my mailbox, I felt a surety that this was the simple next step that God had asked me to take. So I picked up the phone and I called my pal Henry and said, hey, you want to go? And Henry and I went to this anniversary service and we went in. We were the only two Anglos that were in in attendance. The service was in Haitian Creole. The teenagers groaned because now the service had to be translated. So it meant that it was twice as long. But you know something? The moment I was there in an experience that I can't explain, God cemented my heart with a people. Three months later, in January of 2010, many of you are aware of just the horrendous earthquake that struck the island of Haiti. And um, as part of that, I was stunned like many of you were stunned. And I had an opportunity to go to a memorial funeral service in the city of Lynn where there were literally hundreds of Haitians gathered. And at one point in time, the man leading the funeral um, asked that anyone who had lost somebody in the earthquake, would they please stand? And my best estimate is 75% of the hundreds of people gathered stood for they had lost somebody. I've heard of tragedy before, but in this instance, God gave me the weight of that loss as a gift for almost two years worth of seeking and praying for his heart. I got to be honest, apart from the Holy Spirit, I don't know how God actually accomplishes that, but I know that it occurred. And soon thereafter, I had an opportunity to take my first trip with a Haitian pastor to Haiti through a Haitian organization called Sokovim where I was felt totally unqualified, but I was willing to do whatever it took to go to Haiti. And I've been to the island of Haiti probably 12 or 13 times. I have friends and what I consider to be uh, family there. I've had an opportunity to share the gospel, to encourage brothers in Christ that are struggling under tremendous difficulties. I know the history of Haiti. I care about the politics of Haiti. I know Haitians in Montreal. I'm blessed that many of my brothers and sisters here are from Haiti. In my community group on Wednesday nights, I get to hug two Haitian boys every single Wednesday night. And I orchestrated none of that. My point to you and my point to us is it started with, God, give me your heart for some part of your mission that I might grow to be a more global Christian. And so this morning I challenge you to ask God for a specific vision for your participation in his global mission. Ask him to give you his heart for a people. If there's any group of people in this world that should be global, it should be followers of Jesus Christ not bankers, not titans of commerce, 
not entertainers with motive of money and power and fame. It should be Christians who are motivated by the ministry of reconciliation and the justice that the gospel brings to the world. So my question to you is, is there any possibility that God is forming in your heart this morning an inkling, a desire, a whisper? Has he given you a picture, an impression? Have you heard something? Has the word provoked something in you? Is there something you need to do? Are you at the least bit curious? When the word is preached week after week, I always ask myself, how can I leave with the next step? Because the distance between a decision made in that next step and walking out of here doing nothing is the measure of my commitment. So my prayer is that each one of us will take at least one simple step and maybe do something that's just a little inconvenient, a little scary, a little awkward, a little costly, and maybe even a little difficult. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it's your mission. It's your heart. It's your love. We thank you for so graciously sharing it with us. Lord Jesus, our prayer is that the gospel be proclaimed and that your name be exalted to those who are near to us and those that are far. Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would change us, that you would awaken us, that you would give us boldness in the pockets of freedom that you've given us. This morning, we bow before you, we humble ourselves, and we worship you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.